folks, as you know, social media censorship is growing. The best way to support our video work for Israel is to subscribe to our video newsletter on PulseOfIsrael.com and to share our videos. If you are already a subscriber, then thank you. Two additional ways to connect with and support Israel, they are so simple. One, click on this link to help us strengthen Israel by strengthening Judea and Samaria. It's simple, everybody. Just click on the website and choose the best option that works for you to strengthen Judea and Samaria. And number two, enjoy the beauty of Israel whenever you want. No matter where you are in the world, you can enjoy our online virtual tours of Israel. Just visit IsraelIsBeautiful.com and choose the virtual video and activity package that works for you. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Pulse of Israel. I am your host, Avi Abelo, here in our eternal and ancestral homeland, the land of Israel. We are going back to politics, back to Israeli politics with our Knesset insider and Yamina consultant and a list on Yamina Jeremy Sultan. Shalom, shalom, Jeremy. It's been a while. It has. How have you been? Uh, it's been a little bit. How have, you, uh, how have you been, Avi? I haven't spoken to you in a while. Listen, the, past, the, the two weeks of the Gaza war were very, very intense for a number of reasons. I mean, personally, my oldest is in the army and he was called down south. So uh, he, was, he was on the border ready to be called in any second. So obviously, I'm an Israeli soldier myself. So for me, scary about war for my son but knowing about the real the, the the realism about it uh obviously i had to be supportive for my wife who was it was much much harder with her thinking that uh, all of a sudden any second we could have our son uh, inside and uh, and then on the and then just on the pr front working like a dog uh not sleeping at all for two weeks trying to be on top of that and let the truth be known to the world was going on other than that so i'm breathing Breathing, not not surprised about the outcome of the war. Didn't expect anything different. I was surprised that they were talking about a ground invasion. I was pleasantly surprised, even though I told everyone, including my son, that I would be extremely surprised if BB gives the green light for for a, for a ground invasion. Because the only reason nowadays to have a ground invasion is if we're going back in to stay and decimate Hamas and not leave. And I don't think we have the leadership today that would that would do that. So not not surprised. We're left with a ceasefire. How and, and then just waiting for the next the next round. How about you? Uh, I was going to say, could I be cynical for a minute? Uh, I, yeah. I know it's tough to do that after you know uh, a war where, of course, you know, or, or operation. Everyone talk about that we that we lost good people, but um, I, I sort of felt when uh, when I heard a good percentage of our stockpile of the Iron Dome missiles were finished, that it was just a matter of time until we agreed to a ceasefire. Um, you know, I, I would like to think that that was not the reason and that we really were able to achieve all of the military objectives that we set out to do and that we really did give Hamas uh, a very, very tough uh, blow. Um, certainly all of the terrorists that we kill, I'm very, very happy about. I know you are as well. <laughs> and um, that's, that's a lot of bad apples that will not be doing things against the Jewish people or the Israeli nation for some time. So definitely I'm happy about that. But uh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying uh, in terms of the ground operation. Um, you, you know, it, maybe it's possible to make all the objectives just by air. I don't know, because again, as you know, uh, I'm not sitting in the government. I'm not part of the coalition. Um, not Impossible. Part of the Impossible. Impossible. <laughs> Impossible. But, uh, but, but as someone... No, but, has, no, but, no, but, but on that ground, point, it's very yeah. important. But no, before you continue, on that point... I mean, even the official, I remember reading the official IDF um, reports after the failed, the very horribly failed 2006 Lebanon war, second Lebanon war. Again, the whole IDF strategy was was air of offense, thinking they could win the war using the air. And you, I could, I mean, I was in, I was in the army since 1993 and in the reserves, my unit is on the Northern border. Every reserve uh, duty, we were told we're training for the ne next le war, which would be in Lebanon. And we would have to go in. And I remember hearing, wait a second, the, the, the war is in the air only. They're not strategically using ground forces to win this war. So it was known that it was going to fail. And the official um, uh, uh, outcome of the reports was like, yeah, we can't, we, we, we can't win a war by air anymore. That was from then. So I don't even think IDF think anymore they can win an air war. I mean, I would also point out in the last days of the Lebanese war, when we did have uh, ground forces go in, that's when most of the objectives 
of the Second Lebanese War were, were of course, achieved. And uh, again, as someone like yourself who participated in Operation uh, Defensive Shield, the Second Intifada, of course, in uh, reserves in uh, Second Lebanon and in Protective Edge, again, being, you know, in terms of boots on the ground, being one of those boots on the ground um, down there uh, by Gaza, seeing what things are. Uh, so I said, I'm, I'm not in, you know, I'm not in uh, the, the coalition or the government or, or know exactly what the objectives were. I would like to believe if that's what they said, that's true. It's just, uh, I'm just wondering what those objectives were, because again, as someone who's been there on the ground, I would think in order to do a lot of the things that at least I would want to do if I was the one setting the objectives. And again, of course, for a lot of national security reasons, you don't release what all of the military objectives are. But I'm saying the stuff that I would like to do, um, you know, uh, it's to me, it's difficult to see that only be done by air. And like you said, I think the Second Lebanese War is a great example where, um, you know, the many, many weeks we were only doing uh, air stuff. And it was actually in the few days that we had ground forces were able to do a lot. And I would say it's a similar situation if you look at the beginning of uh, Protective Edge nice. versus being able to take out the terror tunnels, which again, you just need boots on the ground in order to be able to accomplish that type of mission. I would argue also, you know, when Barack and the Second Intifada was trying different things through the air, it was uh, it was the boots on the ground in, in uh, defensive shield, particularly in Janine. That was able to take down that terrorist infrastructure. Right. But what, with saying all that, I, I, again, whether whether it's true or not, or a spin, maybe you know, I don't know, but we all know that the, the official story that's been put out there is that Israel called up all the ground troops to the Gaza border and then made an announcement that ground troops were being sent in, and that, in a sense, set up a trap that allowed that had Hamas and all their, their elite units to the border, and then we bombed the living daylights out of them, and we really yeah. decimated their elite forces. So whether that was all an elite uh, uh, plan, diversion so, plan? So, you know, uh, so, so uh, I'll tell you what I can tell you about that, right, I guess. Uh, first of all, you know, in terms of my unit, my brigade, uh, they were actually, they were literally called up. And again, my, my unit's not just a regular unit. Um, it, one of the platoons in full and, and the other two platoons is, you know, there's three platoons in a in a in a, um, in a brigade, especially the platoon that's supposed to go out first. So they were all out, um, you know, sitting there on the Gaza border. And, and I, I have other friends in other units, they were actually mobilized. Like, yeah, no, no, my son was there on the, bar, on the border. There, there were, yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people who were brought in for reserve duty. And again, these are people who, they're, they're ground forces. They're not people right. that uh, operate elsewhere. Um, I'll tell you as someone, you know, I know you do a lot of Hasbro work yourself. You know, I spend time also going ahead and, and representing the Israeli perspective on a lot of uh, foreign media stations, uh, particularly in a, in a Chinese um, TV uh, appearance. They were they were attacking me on this on this um, aspect because they're basically saying that you know we said that we were going in, right? Whereas at least the way they're portraying it, and again, I, I'm being careful to only do things here that were revealed here in public, but. Um, that uh, there was live fire coming from ground forces uh, just from our side of the border. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so again, what we were saying was technically accurate, but the way it was being portrayed and, and the messaging that was coming out from uh, the idea of spokesman was obviously something that was a little bit different. And they made a strategic decision afterwards. Um, China, which of course ended up being very critical uh, of us throughout the war following that, but also a lot of other um, international media stations, they were just going to stop taking things coming from the IDF because they felt right. like they were used as a tool in order to take out, of course, all these bad guys, all these Hamas terrorists who relied on the fact that why would we go ahead and lie to the the, the public, uh, you know, especially the international media in the middle of a Hasbara, you know, offensive as well as, you know, the actual offensive. Um, so uh, I can say just in terms of the results, right, there was a price uh, for, for whatever it is that we did do. Um, and of course, all the stuff that we did here coming out from our side, of course, is that it was well worth the price in terms of the damage that, that Hamas sustained as a result of that. Uh, again, whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense to do those type of things, when again, you're not just looking at the military, you have to be looking also at the diplomatic side of things, your, you know, both foreign relations with, with countries, but also, of course, you know, the fight in Hasbara, the fight uh, within the various international media stations, which, of course, you know, there are thousands at any given time that are, you know, throughout Israel covering what's going on here. 
you know, there's there's a lot of calculations. And once again, when you're not in the government and you're just relying on what uh, your friends in the government are telling you when you're no longer in that room. Um, so, you, you know, whatever you do here, you also have to go ahead and put a, uh, a little uh, asterisk next to that. Right. No, I'm, I'm very glad you raised that point, especially the point I was involved in this when it was happening because of my efforts with international media and social media, seeing the immediate backlash of saying we're never going to trust anything from the IDF again. And it makes me cry, cry not out of anger, cry out of ultimate sadness of hypocrisy and immorality of these high falutin journalists and media corporations because at the same time at the same time these journalists and media companies are actually allowing themselves to be used as propaganda arms putting out the lies of hamas because they know if they don't put out the lies of hamas they will be kicked out of gaza or their journalists will be kidnapped or maybe even killed and their buildings are being used to fire rockets they are literally being used not only as propaganda but as human shields for some of the worst muslim terrorists in the world and yet they have no morals they're upset at us because we're trying to do our best to destroy the enemy while they, the, the media, and the heads of these media companies are allowing themselves to be propaganda tools of terrorism. And I, listen, I'm going to take advantage. I'm going to say this right now because I'm about to start a campaign. I'm, I'm in the process of making this movie. I want there to be a campaign for that all of the, the media companies that had offices in that building with Hamas, AP, Al Jazeera, I don't know who else, to be called out for war crimes. They know, we know they knew that they were in a building with Hamas. We know it. We have footage from 2009 where they know, oh, rockets are being, are being shot from below this building. We know it. We need a public campaign to put them up for war crimes for allowing themselves to be used as human shields. They're not even, you, you can't blame, you can't say, oh, they were being used. No, no, no. They, were doing, they knew it. They knew it. They, they could have left. They could have gotten a build, an office in another Look, building. Uh, it was also reported that uh, Israel gave, uh, as you called, smoking gun, um, you know, evidence to the Biden administration. And, and they backed us on that, meaning, you know, when, when the truth is on your side, as of course it is generally, of course we make mistakes, everyone does, but generally Israel does not make too many mistakes and the truth is on our side. Um, it takes time. <laughs> unfortunately, but after the fact, we're able to go ahead and prove everything it is that we need to prove. I think the, the, the point you're, you're, you're making is important because whenever I, I go ahead and I, I explain this, I always say, well, you're a democracy. We hold you to a whole higher standard. You know, we go ahead and, and we're in a situation where they put us up on a pedestal and they pretty much say, listen, we know Hamas is a bunch of, you know, goons. And that's just the, the price for doing business in that area. And when we're in Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, in some, you know, far out place in Africa, we're making the same deals that we do with Hamas when we're in Gaza, meaning from their perspective, they're saying as a journalist, that's just the way they view journalism, how they're supposed to be doing it. And us as the Western power, we are supposed to um, hold different rules and there are different, uh, there's a different regard compared to what we do compared to what they are doing. And again, that's great if you're looking at things in abstract or as uh, some sort of theory or model within a classroom, or if you're sitting up in the ivory tower, when you're talking about Israeli lives that are at risk, when you're talking about Israeli citizens who are dying, you know, that again, that type of stuff goes into the calculations when it comes to how much weight do you want to give I think there was a, I saw this meme of, uh, I think it was Golda Meir, you know, of the, the famous uh, quote that she said of, um, I'd rather um, uh, be pity, you know, I, I'd rather, you know, be right and not dead than, you know, be, be pitied and dead or something to that effect. I don't remember. I'm paraphrasing what it is uh, that was in that meme. But we're in a situation where, you know, there is no clean way to do things, okay? They specifically choose to do, you know, this in the most messy way possible. And I've said this in all of my appearances. I'm sure you have too. You know, the minute that, that Hamas goes ahead and choose, chooses, you know, to put hospitals, schools, apartment buildings, the media, you know, building, which you mentioned, which is, of course, different than the thing we talked about 
before initially, which was, you know, the, the, the whole Metro, you know, terror uh, tunnel, you know, operation that, that they were running. But I'm saying like you, you have situations where they're, you know, choosing specifically places where there will be collateral damage, where there will be uh, a situation where when you need to deal with the fact where on one side you have a ticking bomb, on the other side, you know, you, you have this issue of collateral damage that, you know, you, you have to make that tough decision. Do you want to see people die here or people die there? And when it comes down to, you know, whether it's the best Hasbro thing to say or not, when it comes to dead Israeli citizens who are your own citizens versus, you know, dead civilians on the side that's shooting at you, you know, again, there are for sure innocents on both sides, but you're always going to choose to protect your citizens because that's your job. <laughs> when, when you are a soldier and you're wearing the uniform of the country that sent you, you're there to protect your children back at home, just as I and you and every other Israeli soldier knows compared to the situation that we see in Hamas, where, of course, they decide to uh, go ahead and put their kids as human shields in order to protect themselves, which is, you know, a complete just, you know, ridiculous concept, which until now, I, I've not found one person in any debate that I've been with, uh, any Palestinian or pro-Palestinian, that can explain to me why it is that that's a moral thing. And it's interesting because you bring up a very important point, uh, which 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 may which calls out the the media as as evil. And uh, you say because you brought up the point how the media companies basically make a deal with the devil. They know well in order for us to be in Gaza and a report from Gaza, we have to go according to the rules that Gaza that Hamas enforces upon us. We can't report this. We can't say this. We have to say this in order for us to stay and do our job. So basically, they made a deal with the devil where they know they're not reporting the truth. They're reporting information that allows the devil to allow them to report. So they're not even doing their duty as journalists. And not only are they not doing their duty as journalists, but by them covering and making Israel out to be the bad guy in innocent civilians who were used as human shields by Hamas being killed, while well, they are enabling Hamas to, to kill even more human shields, even more innocent civilians. So the media is directly responsible for the more for the deaths of innocent civilians because they are doing they're they're basically going against their moral uh, 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 response. They call it your, your journalistic ethics. That's that's a term. So Jer Jeremy, I'm calling upon you to help run a campaign to put these media companies on for war crimes. You know, I'll tell you though. Also, what's interesting because uh, we were talking about the ones that are there on the ground in Gaza. Um, there are a lot of these TV anchors that I go up against, that, that, that you go up, that, that everyone else who's in the Hasbara war does. These TV anchors who are sitting in London, in New York, in Washington, in France, you know, in Paris or whatever, um, there, there's no price for doing business there. Okay. If you are in um, the safety of uh, a Western capital in Western Europe or Northern America, Sorry, say that again. Um, I, had, I had noise. When you're in the safety, say that sentence again. Sure. I said when you're in the safety of a Western European capital or a Northern American city, um, a, a lot of the, the excuses that we're talking about, again, whether you, you agree with us that that's not uh, a reason <laughs> to go ahead and, and, and lie and, and to sell those lies as truth, um, or, or you agree with you know the, the way that these journalists uh, decide to conduct business, I'm saying that type of perspective is not even something that a lot of these anchors within these Western uh, cities can use as an argument, because when they're selling those lies, that's already straight up propaganda. There is no price, you know, that they have to pay because they're able to then go back home to their very nice, comfortable apartment or uh, uh, condo or wherever it is that they live uh, within these places as opposed to the people, of course, living in Gaza, who then those journalists need to go and uh, leave that building and go to another building in which uh, uh, they're living probably with the same people they're working in uh, a few buildings over. Right. All right. Okay, so let, let, let's, let's delve into politics. Now, now that we spent 20 minutes going into the outcome of the war, what is going on, Jeremy? What are we witnessing? Well, 
um, you know, since uh, we've had the election, we had the race to the president's residence that resulted in the first mandate, which Netanyahu got. He failed. That led to a second round in the president's residence, which led to Lapid getting the mandate. And next week, on uh, June 2nd, um, time is up. <laughs> so you have uh, a few scenarios uh, that can come as a result of this. Uh, scenario number one is that Lapid is able to form a government. He's able to say, listen, guys, I have a government. Then he has seven days to be able to uh, bring that to a vote. And uh, then we either see if he indeed has what he says he has or the vote fails. Um, the second option is that Lapid says, I've not been able to form a government. And if he's not able to form a government, there are two different things that are happening here. One is Lapid is circulating a bill, which was uh, sponsored by the Merits Party, that will call to have new elections um, before, you know, on the day that Lapid ends his mandate. This is similar to what Bibi did in the first round of elections, if you remember, to prevent right. Gantz from getting the mandate. The idea here is for Lapid to prevent um, the possibility of a third mandate. The second thing that could happen is, um, again, within the second scenario, if Lapid is not able to present a government, which is, um, is that we go into the 21 days, which takes us to the third mandate scenario. So again, again, you know, briefly, either by June 2nd next week, Lapid presents a government or he says he doesn't have a government. If he presents a government, he has a week to bring a vote. Either it'll happen or it won't happen in terms of getting enough Knesset approval. And that's a question mark, of course. And then the second thing is if he's not able to do it, he's either successful in getting a majority in order to prevent the third mandate, or uh, he's not able to, and then we end up going into the track of a third mandate. So you can tell me from there, which again, there are two different options, and really it's a checkerboard since each one of those two options has you know, two of its own options, where it is that you would like me to first um, spend so let me, time let me, going more into detail. Let me take a step back. Let's okay? give you one of those four things. That All right, so, so let me take a step back and come from a different angle. Before Hamas started firing rockets at Israel, the Israeli public was given the picture, again, whether it's true or not, we were given the picture that any second Lapid would have a government with Bennett, your party, Yamina party, and Saar, Tikva Chadasha, together with the two, the whole left, Meretz, Avoda, Blue and White, as well as the Arab parties. The war started, and with the war starting, two things happened. One, the head of the Ram party said, I'm not talking politics. And again, to bring people into perspective, these many Israeli Arabs took part in the violent riots in Israel. And everyone was saying, wait a second, there is no way we can have a government that relies on the Arab parties because here, here they're standing by these Arab Israelis who are rioting against their own Jewish neighbors that they live peacefully next to for all these years. And the second thing was that Bennett himself said, that's it, there's no more... Uh, Lapid option on the table. It's over. At least that was a message that was put out there. Now the war is over. What has changed since before the war? Or because it looks like we're back to square one with Lapid, as if any minute we can have this government with with Yamina, Bennett, Saar, Tikva Khadashah, the left, and the Arab parties. All right, so, so we'll back up to the second mandate. Um, in terms of what happened in the second mandate, uh, by law, Netanyahu cannot get the first man, you know, because he had the first mandate, he can't get the second mandate. There was a question who, who it was that was going to be able to get the second mandate. Uh, there was the option that Bennett could get it or the option that Lapid could get it. We talked, you know, uh, originally, you know, there were three candidates and uh, Bibi got the most, so he got it first. Um, there was a, what, what it seemed to be was there seemed to be a good chance that the Likud, along with you know the 52 block under Netanyahu, would all nominate Bennett so that Bennett would have the mandate. And then what Bennett would be able to do is he would be able to negotiate both with the Bibi side and the Lapid side. And that way Netanyahu would know that you know the, the risk of only things happening with the Lapid side is is out of you know is out of question. This comes from the fact that um, 
the only one who has the legal authority to be able to form a coalition is the person with the mandate. Meaning, even if Netanyahu now finds 61 people to support his government, there's nothing he can do about it because Lapid is the only one that can form it. If Bennett had the mandate, that would still allow Netanyahu within the period of the second mandate to have an opportunity for a right-wing coalition. What ended up happening in the, the president's residence in the end is that the 52 bloc decided to uh, choose nobody. They, they decided not to nominate any candidate. That ensured that Lapid would be able to get the mandate. This also happened because Gidon Saar, who had not backed Lapid, of course, he didn't back Netanyahu either, but he did not back Lapid in the first round in the president's residence, decided to move over and support Lapid in the second round. So what happens is Lapid gets the mandate instead of Bennett. And as we said, whoever has the mandate, we're happy to sit with. You know, I pointed out back when Netanyahu had the mandate, uh, Bennett had five meetings with him, you know, meetings, some of them going all night, some of them in the prime minister's residence, you know, there on Balfour Street, some of them where, again, Bennett brought his, you know, two top advisors, Netanyahu brought his, and they tried to work on various scenarios to be able to, to form a government. In the end, what it came down to was Netanyahu had three shots at forming a government. One was convincing Smotrich to be able to sit with Abbas. The second was for Gidon Tsar to agree, you know, based on whatever condition, there was the idea of if there's a rotation government and Bennett is first in the rotation, then maybe Gidon Tsar would come. That was an offer that was later made. And then the third option is that there could be defectors uh, from other parties within the Lapid bloc that would then go ahead and move over. Um, it was very clear that it was Bibi's job to try to deal with Smotrich. And uh, he, you know, pretty much said, you know, Bennett, it's on you to deal with Sar. And in terms of finding defectors, you have specific people in the Likud who are good at finding them. And, you know, they were supposed to go ahead and do that. What ended up happening was, and I'm sure you've noticed this, there was zero pressure at all from Netanyahu on Smotrich to go with Abbas. There was um, a lot of effort and a lot of meetings between Bennett and Saar. Saar just said, you know, for him, Netanyahu cannot be part of the next, you know, government in a rotation, whether it's one people, two or five people in the rotation. He doesn't want Netanyahu to have one more day in uh, the prime minister's chair. That, that's his position. And uh, Netanyahu was in a situation, and of course, it's his right to do so, to say, if I'm not prime minister, then no one's going to be prime minister. Um, we said that, you know, as the party that said we're going to do everything we can to form a government, that wasn't an acceptable position. Of course, the defectors route did not produce any results. And uh, I never expected that to, but there was a lot of hope that a lot of people had on that specific route. And that led to a breakdown in uh, the talks between Netanyahu and Bennett. And then, like I said, Netanyahu even refused to give Bennett the nominations in the president's residence. So when Lapid said, I have the mandate, you said that you would sit with whoever has the mandate. I have the mandate. Come sit with me. Bennett sat with him. And Lapid brought Bennett along with him to meet with the other members of the Lapid bloc. And they talked about the various ways that uh, again, under this situation, Bennett would be the one who would be uh, sworn in as prime minister. Again, the idea would be a rotation government, but we can ask Benny Gantz exactly how that works in terms of having a long-term arrangement, especially with a fragile coalition. But yeah, so, so Bennett would be prime minister. How do you create a situation in which you would have a right-wing majority when you have a lot of left-wing <laughs> MKs that would be in that type of coalition, how it would be that you would be able to, you know, live up to your principles and values that you talked about during the, the election when you have all these questionable parties as part of uh, the coalition. So they sat and they had a lot of different discussions on that. Um, what ended up happening was we got to a situation where it was, uh, um, it was the eve of Jerusalem Day uh, right, it was Sunday of that week, the day before things broke out on Monday on Jerusalem Day, where it seemed That's like correct. we were Just about... to remind everyone, Monday, Jerusalem Day was the day that Hamas started shooting rockets on us. It's the day before Hamas started shooting rockets. Right. So it seemed that we were, I would say, about three days from a vote in which Naftali Bennett would be sworn in as the prime minister of the state of Israel. 
again, there was nothing in writing. There were no coalition agreements, but it seemed like that was the direction and that that was the way that things were going to go. And then we saw what happened. Uh, Hamas shot rockets. We ended up seeing uh, a lot of violence in the streets, in the mixed cities, in Lod, in Akko, in uh, Haifa, in uh, a lot of other places. And uh, you, you mentioned also, you know, Mansour Abbas, but also Bennett said, I'm not going to be dealing with politics when Israel is under fire. And, you know, just as I did a lot of Hasbara, and you did too, Naftali did probably more Hasbara interviews than anybody. I think he did about yeah. 12 to 15 different interviews. Some of them, you know, got posted on social media, others not, but he went out and did a very, very big service to the state of Israel. And this was a fundamental difference that he had with Lapid. Lapid continued with coalition negotiations while we were under fire. Um, he didn't have an issue, Lapid, uh, criticizing Netanyahu during this time. And that's something that, that, that Bennett, you know, had an issue with. He did not criticize Netanyahu in any of the interviews that he did. Um, and he didn't, you know, criticize uh, Gantz or the Israeli policy. He gave full backing. And I, I think also, you know, I would say that is what I think the Israeli people expect. You know, it doesn't matter if the government is right or left or who is there. You want to know that the entire Israeli Knesset and all Israeli parties are getting together and supporting the government when there are rockets falling on your cities and there's violence on your streets. So I think that was the responsible position to take. We get to the point where people are asking, well, why isn't Bennett making a statement, this, that, whatever? Um, he didn't make, you know, statements because he, he was very clear. He's not going to make statements when of a political nature when we're under fire, you know, and even if he would write in a internal group, um, I'm not going to talk about political stuff till after things are over. Uh, we would see, unfortunately, things would get leaked and, uh, and that stuff would get out and so on and so forth. But nothing has fundamentally changed in, in terms of the principle of us wanting to go ahead and prevent another election. You've seen all the polls. There's no difference in the blocks. We'll go to a fifth election. We'll go to a sixth election, a seventh election, an eighth election. It doesn't look like people are going to change their minds. Within the blocks, you might have some changes, as each poll will tell you, in one way or another. But the blocks themselves are not really changing. We're, we're not going to see a resolution if we go to another election. It would be a different thing if we did, but it doesn't look like that's the direction we're looking at, at least, again, according to the polls. So, you know, Netanyahu offered to Bennett, again, even though Lapid has the mandate, to come back and to do negotiations with the Likud. And like I said, our goal is to go ahead and prevent an election. So we said, sure. So we went ahead and we started with negotiations with the Likud. Lapid, in the meantime, has gone around and signed coalition deals with other parties. What it appears his strategy is, um, again, looking at, you know, the way that he's doing things, is that he plans to go next week at the end of the mandate to Bennett and say, here is uh, the coalition. I decided to go on without you. This is what it looks like. And uh, I expect you now to agree to this. <laughs> That's what it would seem. Um, or, else, or, else, or, or, or else, yeah, I'll go ahead with the election bill because, you know, uh, I had mentioned you have the possibility of a third mandate. What happens in, in the event of a third mandate? I would assume, right, okay, if Lapid just had 28 days to form a government and he didn't manage, <laughs> he's not going to get the signatures for a third mandate. I think if Bibi was not able to get anything in the first mandate, and even during Lapid's second mandate wasn't able to achieve 61, he would not be able to do so. Bennett is in this unique position where, again, he's the only one that's not being ruled out by either side, and both sides need him in order to form a government. And as pointed out, even Lapid, who's signing these coalition deals, is keeping in mind that his plan is to offer Netanyahu, sorry, to offer Bennett the premiership um, at the end of this process because he doesn't have the votes without it. And on the other side of it, Netanyahu himself understands the only chance we get Gidon Sar to come over, or Benny Gantz, or you know whatever maybe potential rebels, um, you, you know the or refugees that might leave in the in the case it's not Netanyahu, right? If it's Bennett. So even Netanyahu, again, was talking publicly about the idea of, of Bennett being prime minister. So it makes sense that people from both the right and the left camp would 
possibly go ahead and into a third mandate in which they would sign signatures for Bennett. Uh, it's possible they wouldn't because, again, you're in a situation where you're on both sides and you wouldn't necessarily know which direction he would go in. For Lapid, it's more of a scary endeavor because Bennett has said many times publicly he prefers a right-wing coalition to a left-wing coalition. So if he does go ahead and get the third mandate, again, in this theoretical situation, one would assume that he would first reach out to Netanyahu before reaching out to Lapid. You know, on the other hand, if Lapid is trying to say that he's doing everything to prevent another election, um, it'll look really bad if he doesn't sign for Bennett. But if he goes ahead and while he has the mandate, does a dispersing of the Knesset, and uh, of course he doesn't say it's about Bennett, he says it's about Netanyahu or, you know, whatever other, you know, uh, talking point he decides to go into, again, within the, these theoretical, you know, scenarios. So um, he, it, it, it would uh, help him escape a lot of those potential scenarios that, again, could produce a government, but not necessarily one that he would like as well. And again, you can just go back and ask Netanyahu why he didn't choose Bennett uh, during this time to have the mandate, because this is, again, the ramifications, and really this, <laughs> this entire series of four elections <laughs> in two years is, is a series of Netanyahu making uh, miscalculations in terms, to, uh, in terms of decisions that have led him down a path that is not necessarily the best thing for him. Uh, certainly not for the right-wing camp, I would argue. So um, to summarize that, that you know, uh, long point, what you could have is um, a situation where we do go back to where we were three days before Jerusalem Day, but that's not the place we are in now. That could be the place we're in tomorrow. It could be the place we're in next week. But right now, in terms of what's happening, we have not seen a return to that situation. Wait, what, course, what are you referring to? Because it's it's not, in my head, when I think about the situation uh, before the Gaza war, before Jerusalem Day, it was Lapid and Bennett in, in, in very intense talks together right. to set up the coalition. Whereas right now, it's as you explained, it's Lapid setting up his own coalition agreements, and then basically at the end, at the, the, the ninth, the ninety-ninth minute, then going to Bennett. All right, are, are you on board? Meaning, is the situation worse now for Bennett, Yamina, and the the right wing camp because it's basically Lapid now in charge of all these coalition agreements to put it together? So uh, it would depend again on what happens there. Meaning, Bennett could go ahead and say, "I'm very happy about all the coalition agreements that you signed." But if you want me to be prime minister, we're going to return to where we were and we're going to rip up everything you just did and go back to the stuff we were talking about before. Got it. And, and, by, and by the way, you know, Lapid could say no. The parties that signed the coalition agreements could say no. And we could go to another election. Again, these are all theoretical situations and scenarios, and we don't know what's, what's happening. We're, we're doing the game of playing each one of these out. But I'm saying right. each person has their interests. Right. Right. Lapid's interest is to form a government and get rid of Netanyahu. That's his interest. Bennett's interest is to form a government, but his preference is for it to be a right-wing government. If he did have the mandate, by the way, I do believe even, you know, what you were talking about beforehand about the, the need of, you know, the air parties or whatever, I do believe the Haredim who do like being in coalition governments, and again, I've talked with many of them or whatever, if, and this might've been Netanyahu's calculation, by the way, um, we saw some of the MKs and the Haredi parties writing, you know, public letters to BB, you know, to let someone else, you know, do the job. It's possible if Bennett got the, the mandate, you would have um, some sort of uh, mix mash in which uh, you'd have the Haredi come in and then uh, you wouldn't need Abbas. Uh, if both Shas and UTJ come in, then you don't even need merits either. You know, if you're able to bring in Smorich, then you don't even need the Labor Party, meaning there's a certain amount in terms of math in the way to 61, depending on how things went, there was uh, possibilities in which there would be a much, much more right-wing version. Um, going back to, you know, the argument of people were like, well, why would, you know, Lapid not give, you know, Bennett the mandate if he wants to make him prime minister or whatever? Again, for, from Lapid's perspective, Bennett would still negotiate as he's negotiating now with the Likud because he wants to have a right-wing government. And if there would be a pathway to 61, so, so Bennett would take it. 
It's just there, there isn't one that seems feasible right now. It's possible between now and, uh, you, you know, next week, you don't start changes his mind. Or you do have those defectors, you know, or I don't know, uh, Mansour Abbas decides to convert to Judaism and Smotrich gives him a hug. Uh, like there, there are a lot of potential things that can happen. It's just it doesn't seem that a lot of these things are likely. But um, but you have a situation where what Lapid has want, wanted to do is create a, a coalition which Bennett would be the most right-wing in it, compared to Bennett, who would have wanted to create a coalition where Lapid would have been the most left-wing uh, member of it. Where again, the core the core people within these coalitions, everyone understood, is you know is Bennett and Saar and Gantz and Lapid. Like in terms of the majority of MKs in the, in the coalition, we knew who it was. It's a question: Do you go in the direction of? Lieberman and Labor and Merits and, you know, possibly the Arabs? Or do you go in the direction of the Haredim, Smotrich, perhaps some sort of splinter party coming out of the Likud from the more, you know, liberal side that our old pals with Guido and Saar, for instance? You know, there, there were various things that were possible. But with Lapid having the mandate, and again, you know, I, I, I do think uh, that was a mistake from, you know, uh, Netanyahu's perspective, and we saw that especially during this war, that we might end up in a situation from his perspective, right, where we'll end up with a, with the government anyways, but we'll be in a government in which um, it might end up being pulled more to the left had Netanyahu given that mandate to, um, to, to Bennett. Bennett, and then we would have maybe seen even a, a coalition where Netanyahu would be able to be prime minister within rotation. So what's what's bothering me, and I think bothering a lot of people, um, let's put aside the Amina party for a second, because I want to ask you like what the feeling is of, of the Shetach, of, of, of the field of the Amina voters, supporters, activists, in terms of the potential of Yamina joining a left-wing government. And again, for people to understand, a left-wing government, under whether it's... Bennett as prime minister or Lapid or whatever, but when if, with it's the Arab parties, the merits parties, you're having ministers and committee members running these committees. Some of them, if not many of them, if not half of them, very important, led by people who are against the existence of the state of Israel as a Jewish state and all that entails, which is so dangerous on so many levels. But what 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 I want to ask you right now, what bothers me is. Up until now, you look at the media and even the activists, it's Bennett and Yamina getting all of the fire, getting all of the anger about, about allowing this to happen. Very little attention is being given to the fact that Bennett's been open to sitting with Likud, even on Jabibi, and coming up with, with, with uh, solutions to make a right-wing government. The one who's been adamantly against it has been Saar and his new hope, Tikva Chadasha party. And the thing that, bought, what, that really bothers me is understanding the difference between a right-wing government and a left-wing government, and Saar understands the fact that Mishilut, uh, the rule, the rule of law in Israel is, is very, very fragile because with each day the Supreme Court and the justice system usurp more and more powers from the legislative. Just this week, they now came up with a ruling that basically negates even even basic laws, that they can that they can annul and change all, all basic laws, which until now was sacrosanct, even according to the Supreme Court. And this upcoming government potentially can be appointing, I think, four or six Supreme Court justices that in a sense will, e will either take Israel further down the autocratic uh, uh, justice system rule of Israel, or try to bring about changes through appointments to the justice system that through the Supreme Court to allow for changes to rebalance Israeli democracy between the between the different branches. And yet Saar, who understands this very well, he's a lawyer, he bent at the Supreme Court, he has, has been vocal about, about the problems with the Supreme Court and the justice system. He, in a sense, is allowing this to pay to to, to allowing what is the worst of the worst of the worst potential situation to happen by being so anti any uh, potential uh, solution with with Benjamin Netanyahu leading the Likud party? So that that's what so, bothers me. What do you, what and, and others? What what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the Gidon stuff, and then I'll and then I'll move backwards. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that I don't think people get. If we do go in that direction, again, I, I said we're, we're just not, because the talks right now are with Likud, they're not with, you know, Yeshitid. 
um, what was talked about was that the stuff that are important to the right would stay in the right. And the justice minister, the, the justice ministry would be in the right. Meaning, if you look at the disagreements as reported in the press, it was, is Gidon Saar who you're talking about, the new justice minister, or is it Ayelet Shaked? Okay. Then, then you're like, talking um, if, if you're talking even with Lapid having the mandate. Uh, I'm talking about in what was talked about with the potential Bennett government, in which again Lapid would be the foreign minister in that government. Um, we would have a situation in which uh, the justice ministry would be in the hands of the right. And again, the the, the question in terms of the identity of the right wing minister, who would, um, as you pointed out, not four but six. There'd be six appointments of uh, Supreme Court justices, yes. and, it, and it's it's important to say this: it's a fifteen. It isn't nine like it is in the United States. It's fifteen, um, you know, judges on the bench. Um, but but six is is a lot. And if you look at, at the fact that Shaked already appointed six, you know, she would be the next one, and she appointed another six. Well. I don't have to tell you, um, you know, we would have a very different Supreme Court than uh, the Hauser compromise um, uh, court case, which, you know, we could spend an hour just talking about what happened right. with, with that one. But um, the, the point I was trying to say is this. Um, if you look at the important ministries and you look at the government that potentially was going to be formed, I'm not talking about the stuff that's being signed now with uh, – Lapid with with all these different you know people, it would be and I know you know I'll have to say this twice because I know this needs to sink in with some people. It would be more right wing than the current Netanyahu Gantz government. I'll say that one more time: the the Bennett Lapid government would be more right wing than the um, Netanyahu Gantz government. Okay, br break that down. Explain that to people. Why? Because so, just saying that, so, people won't believe. Why? Explain no, no, that. I understand that, you know. And again, it's difficult because now stuff that, w that was said, but it was never put down and signed upon as, as agreements, it's difficult. But I can tell you that all of the stuff that mattered to the right, you'd have right-wing ministers. But, but I'm saying if you just want to take that one thing, you know, that juicy thing that we we're talking about in terms of ministries, uh, of the justice ministry. Right now, Benny Gantz is the justice minister, okay? Before him, for this entire term, it was Avi Nisinkorn. Even worse. And I don't have to remind you the time in which Tsipi Livni was the justice minister under Netanyahu, and she was also in charge of the negotiations with the Palestinians. Right, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to explain to people who might not be as familiar, what you are alluding to is that even with right-wing Netanyahu-led governments, he has consistently, consistently, except when, in a sense, blackmailed by Bennett and Shaked, consistently given the justice ministry, uh, in addition to other important minister ministries and, and policy making that are important to the Reich, right, handed over to the responsibility of the left in order for them to be part of his 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 coalition government. So even though we had right-wing governments, many of the policy-making and ministries that we needed to be under the right, Netanyahu did not keep in the right. He gave to the left. Sure. And, and, and you know, the, those are important things to know. Um, yeah, the, the left would get ministries under, you know, the, the deals we were talking about. Um, but But it also doesn't bother me for them to have it, meaning... You know, I think this, this Israeli health system, uh, whichever knows is very much socialist with private options, but very much socialist, works better because of, you know, the fact that you have four different public uh, providers and each one of the four has three different levels that you can pay into, each one being obviously more expensive than the next. But essentially, you have 12 public options to choose from at three different price ranges, um, from four different companies. So even though it's 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 a socialist system, there is a lot of competition, and um, having a left wing health minister is not the same as having a left wing education minister. Okay, and uh, and also you know I, I'll say I don't know about your own you know uh, feelings on these things, but you know giving the environment ministry to merits does not you know bother me. I think. Uh, you know, whatever your position is on uh, climate change, there are, you know, certain things that we need to do to adapt to it, whether it's, uh, you know, stuff that, that is, you know, being done by, by men or it's, you know, for whatever other reason, there, there are things we need to do 
when it comes to these issues. So these are not things that are going to bother me. And of course, in a majority of the, the Netanyahu governments anyways, this is what was happening. Um, you know, I, I think people forget this, but the Labor Party right now is a member of the uh, government right now, you know, having the economy ministry, the uh, social labor and welfare ministry, um, you know, of course, blue and white, as I said, including the more left wing flank of it uh, has, you know, practically half of the government ministries at this point because of the uh, deal that they had struck with Netanyahu. So you would see a situation where you would see an improvement in terms of um, the, the deal that Netanyahu made where he gave a majority of the ministries that mattered to the Gantz side, to the left side of uh, the block, right? You would have the other type of situation where the stuff that mattered to the right would stay with Bennett, whereas the Lapid side of the block would end up getting the type of ministries that uh, we see, you know, Netanyahu getting now, which includes stuff like the Ministry for Regional Cooperation, or, um, you know, like I said, the environment, um, uh, stuff like um, agriculture. And again, I'm not saying that these things aren't important. I'm saying whether it's a left-wing or a right-wing minister when it comes to health or agriculture, or, you know, a lot of these other aspects, I don't think you would see a very significant uh, sort of difference uh, in terms of what would happen as opposed to the situation of having right-wing education, uh, justice, you know, those type of ministries, those are type of things which have a real ideological flair to them and therefore would be able to uh, really change the way that things would be going forward. So that's why I said I needed to say it twice. That's also why I said I needed to sort of clarify this point. I don't think people fully understand the power that a minister has within his ministry, but also by just appointing someone that sends the um, spirit of the message of what the government is trying to say and do in that area, it trickles all the way down to the common worker within that ministry. So I really, really think that it'll be very interesting, right? But I, I, if we do see some sort of return to that type of thing, to measure it up against this government and also previous governments, again, whether it was with the Hud Barak or Tsipi Livni or whoever else, because it's okay to, to be critical of this point, but you can't be hypocritical. Meaning if Bennett, who I assume most people would, would believe is more right-wing than Bibi, and in most of the key ideological positions in terms of ministries, we have right-wing ministers Okay. That in terms of policy and important things that are coming up on the calendar, such as appointing six Supreme Court justices, we would have a lot to be able to offer the right. Um, the other point that you were making in terms of why all the pressure is on you, Mina, um, you know, this is my own personal feeling, but my own personal feeling is that from the beginning, um, BB was not very serious about forming a government. And if he was, it wouldn't be Bennett that he put all of his pressure on. Because again, time and time again, we said, you know, we're working with you. And even now, you know, we're in talks with the Likud. We're not the problem. Smortrich refuses to sit with any Arab parties. And that's fine. I completely believe me. I completely understand that uh, position. And it's a legitimate position. Netanyahu did not once, not once publicly or privately put any pressure on Smortrich to change that position. You know, Publicly, he said, we need to bring in Mansour Abbas. We need to bring in the Ram party. He had no problem, you know, taking pictures with him or making deals with him. Also throughout this process of the various things of, with the arrangement committee and different votes over the last couple months. But he never put any pressure on Smotrich at all. The second thing is that Gidon Sar, as you said, uh, we said, you know, under fire, we're not, you know, dealing with politics. Gidon Sar said during that time he was still going with uh, Lapid and didn't have a problem continuing with coalition negotiations. During that entire time period, and even right now, there is zero in terms of pressure coming out from Netanyahu himself or the Likud to Gidon Sar to come in. Again, the pressure's on Bennett. Why is the pressure on Bennett? Because again, if you really want to go ahead and form this 61, 
you need SAR. Pressuring Bennett doesn't help you because those are the seats you already have to count on in order to, to, to go ahead and, and have the coalition you want. Right. Um, you know, j just to finish this point, I think, and I get this, that Netanyahu doesn't want to do it. But if Netanyahu would step aside, we would have a very strong right-wing Knesset. We already have one of the strongest right-wing Knessets, if not the most right-wing Knesset of all time. We'd have a very strong right-wing government. And again, this idea of Bennett and his ego and his personal ambition, Bennett has said this many times publicly. And I'll tell you this also. If he wanted to give, if, if Netanyahu wanted to give it to number two, which is Yuli Edelstein, or, you know, number three, Israel Katz, or any of those other people, I don't see Gidon Saar, I don't see us, I don't see anyone else complaining. We, we have an ability to have a right-wing government in this Knesset. Netanyahu could have decided to go for the presidency, he would have been supported, he would still have had a very big role. Um, again, we're not the ones that are telling Netanyahu to leave. I'm just saying in terms of the options that we have now, because people tell me, they're like, well, if in the current talks with Likud, you're not able to get what you want, don't go back to Lapid. So I say, but that's going to lead us to another election. You know, and they're like, well, that's better. You know, I, I'm looking at what the alternatives are here, right? You have one alternative is that we see, again, we can't compromise on our values here, but can we create some sort of government that is more right-wing than the current government with Lapid? If yes, to me, that's better than a fifth election. And I, and I think also, if Netanyahu can decide that he's willing to step down and let someone else lead the right, I think that would be great. And no one is stopping him from doing that. Um, I understand that he doesn't want to, but to go ahead and say it's better to have a fifth election over the alternatives that I mentioned, I just don't see that being something that makes sense. You know, Avi, we're the only country... That, that did not pass a 2020 state budget. Uh, Yemen in the middle of the civil war was able to do it. Okay, in Syria, they're able to do it somehow every year. Of course, it's a dictatorship. It's pretty easy. You know, in 2021, we are still the only ones that have not passed one. We just are in many ways a laughing stock. We had a war in which you're not even sure if, you know, what would have happened if Lapid created a majority in the middle of the war and demanded a vote, okay, in, in the Knesset to replace the prime minister in the middle of that operation? We are in, you know, this situation of constant instability, political flux. There are important challenges that we need to have answers to. We have situations like, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you filed the, 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 the situation of, you know, Itzik Sidan, right? The, the poor guy who's, um, who the, the the budgets to help people like him, they were all approved in the Knesset, you know, three years ago. We just have not been able to pass a state budget and actually take those budget items and put the money in there to actually provide public services and help people and do what a government is, is supposed to be able to do. You know me, I'm a very ideological person, but my feeling here is, the number one thing you need to have is a government. And I've said this many times over the last few years. I'm okay also losing an election. I'm okay sitting in the opposition. In fact, you know, our, our party sat the last year plus in the, in, the, in the opposition. But you know what? You need to have a government. And you need to not just have a government for the sake of having, you know, a government and people who, who sit in chairs and make salaries. You need to do your job. And the most primary elementary job that you have when you are forming a, a new government in Israel is an ability to pass a state budget and make sure that each one of those ministries is able to actually do the things that they're supposed to and that you're able to pay for those things. And that you don't go to parents and say, I, we don't have enough money. We're going to have to cut a bunch of hours you know, from school because we can't pay the teachers. Okay, or have a situation where say, listen, we have Corona and we have all of these people dying, but we don't have money for more beds. Even though, again, we, we've approved all this stuff, but, you know, we, we're out of the emergency funds and we're out of this and that and whatever. And there's only so many times you can create tricks through the appropriations committee, you know, to, to, to deliver, you know, all these different things. And especially now with 
this landmark ruling of the Supreme Court, which prevents us to do a lot of things by saying you can't play with basic laws the way that we've played with them up until now, you know, it just makes that even more difficult in terms of being able to do our job without having a national budget. So again, you know, I really hope we're able to do stuff. I really hope that we're able to have a right-wing government. I'm not very optimistic about it, but, you know, I really hope that we are able to have a government. And again, as someone who knows Naftali pretty well, as you know, I do believe that he's going to do everything possible in whatever arrangement that he'll be able to stand for the type of values and principles that, that, that all of us on the right wing stand for. I really, truly believe that. So you're a betting man, Jeremy. Come June 2nd, are we going to have a Lapid Bennett government or are we going to fifth elections or in third mandate? I don't know because it, it, it depends on a lot of people. You know, the situation is right now in the BB groups, they are sure that, that Bennett's going with Lapid. In the Lapid groups, they are sure that he's going with BB. Okay. In certain groups, everyone is in sure. In the Amina groups. In, in the Amina groups, right now, there's uh, obviously a disagreement. <laughs> you know, uh, there's unfortunately been a lot of leaks there. But you have people who, who definitely would like to see some sort of arrangement with Likud. You have some people who would like to see an arrangement with Lapid. You have a lot of people who want to see another election. But I would say, if you're asking me where the majority is, right, because people who leak, they always leak to, with, with a certain interest. I think a majority of the people, and, and this shouldn't surprise, you know, it's surprise the spinsters, but people who voted Yamina when we said Naftali Bennett wants to be prime minister actually want to see Naftali Bennett be prime minister. <laughs> Meaning they're saying, you know, go be prime minister. If you're able to make a deal with Bibi and be prime minister, great. If you're able to make a deal with Lapid and be prime minister, great. But a majority of them, they support the leader of the party that they voted for, and they want to see him as prime minister. But this is the thing. As much as Lapid and as much as uh, Netanyahu want to paint this entire situation, that everything here is about Naftali Bennett, it's not. If Lapid offers a lousy deal, and he's not willing to compromise and makes this calculation that he can now create this, you know, left-wing government on full and uh, expect Bennett to be some sort of fig leaf, as opposed to the type of things that were talked about beforehand, that, then in my opinion, um, Lapid is going to be disappointed and will go to another election. And Lapid can say as much as he wants that he'd blame, you know, Bennett for it, but it would be Lapid who brought us there by deciding to, to go backwards in negotiation. I would say the same thing with Netanyahu. Again, Netanyahu doesn't need to, to, to you know, step aside, but if Netanyahu doesn't want to step aside and he wants to do everything possible to sabotage the creation of an alternative government, which again, its goal is to be able to bring stability and pass national budgets in this nation, um, just to bring us to another election, that's not gonna change anything. I would understand if he was getting 61 in the polls, but he's not. It's to send us to another election, to send us to the next one after that, and a continuous, continuous circle that brings us nowhere and continuously humiliates us as a nation and creates an even bigger and bigger hole in terms of our deficit, in terms of our ability to actually pay you know, for the things that we need to. And of course, the, the, the value of our currency, our credit rating, and all of these important things which are necessary to maintain the financial standing which we have today. Well, all right. Well, listen, Jeremy, thank you uh, once again for a comprehensive uh, update of our crazy, crazy, crazy political yeah. situation. Just praying to witness... Uh, hopefully as soon as possible, a good, a good government of Israel. <laughs> I told you, I, I really hope for a good government at this point. I'll take um, not every government, but, but practically, you know, I, I really believe this at this point, practically any government is better than continuing in this state the way we are now, because this is just cannot be the new normal. It just the, the takeaway I get from you and, and, and listen, you're my Knesset insider and, and man on the ground with an ear, an ear and a mouth to, uh, to, 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 to talking with Bennett. 
And the message I get from you is, if there is a Bennett-Lapid government, it's going to be the one that you, Mr. Proud Jewish right-winger Israeli, is one that you could feel proud about being a part of. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, <laughs> On a I, again, this, is, this, this is difficult for people to get, but for someone to put their name on something, okay, means that, that they actually believe in it. People who don't believe in it, they, they resign, they leave, you know, and I can also respect that, meaning I, I understand people who, who say that. I, again, my, my question to everyone who says, if this is where we go, why should, you know, they, they tell me they, want, they don't want to go there, ask them, A, what's their alternative? The answer to that is almost always another election, which again, to me, I, I, I just don't accept that as an alternative. It's legitimate that that's their opinion. I just don't think that's a good thing. They, meaning they acknowledge there is no other, meaning if they, they know if Bennett can go with Bibi, he will. If that doesn't, Lapid is a Barat Mechdal, right? It's a situation where, you know, it's either that or elections. And we're saying we, we would do it if it's better than another election. For people say a better, you know, it's better go elections no matter what the scenario is, I'm saying if we're able to achieve a more right-wing government than the one we have now, so why why is it better to go to a fifth election when it's going to crash our economy? Right. Um, and and then the the you know I, I would say B is ask people what are you afraid of? What is it that makes you afraid of this Bennett Lapid government? And then when they tell me a lot of things, a lot of times it's based on stuff that. Uh, again, I, I don't know what the final thing is going to be, and I don't know if there will be something, but at least based on the type of talks that we're having a while ago, um, almost all the fears people are talking about, as you mentioned, you know, like the six appointments of the Supreme Court justices and whatever, um, the, these are fears that are just not of substance because we thought of those things. You know, Naftali's a smart guy. I, I, I really like, um, I understand the Likud propaganda machine. But to make this out that, you know, Naftali Bennett is not an ideologue, when it was Naftali Bennett who was the ideological backbone of all of the Netanyahu governments, forcing Netanyahu to take an ideological stand on almost every single issue, I think they need to go ahead and give him a bit more credit here. And I think, again, they have to understand that, you know, even with everything that's going on, Bennett has no problem sitting with Netanyahu. It's Netanyahu that is still, until today, refusing to put zero pressure on Smotrich or Saar to be able to move us in one of the two directions, which are necessary in order to produce a government that he would be the head of. No, I hear you. I hear you. Jeremy, thank you very, very much for your, for your insight. Very, very important. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thank you, Avi. Everybody... There you go. You have an update from Knesset Insider and Insider to the Amina Party and political consultants to Naftali Bennett of the Amina Party, Jeremy Sultan. Hope you uh, enjoyed catching up on the latest and where things stand today. And please uh, share the video. And uh, just before signing off and saying shalom from the eternal and ancestral homelands of the Jewish people, if you want to continue, continue to receive our videos from the Pulse of Israel and receive the truth that is being censored by the media and censored by social media and censoring us. Well, the best way to ensure continue receiving our videos, go to pulseofisrael.com and sign up for the newsletter. Shalom, everyone. Thanks for watching. Signing off from the eternal and ancestral homeland of the Jewish people, the land of Israel. Pulse of Israel, frontline videos from the Holy Land. Support our work by donating today.